At Home with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a bi-weekly radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. particular hope for elder leaders like Biden and Nancy Pelosi to really call the younger generation to action to help solve the problems of the country, to join older people in doing that, and to create for the first time an intergenerational service corps, rarely to bring the generations together on equal footing to bring their unique assets and idealism. And that was Maggie Kuhn's dream. The tagline for the Grey Panthers was young and old in action together. I'd like to see elder leaders join in that enterprise. I have the pleasure of hosting Mark Friedman, the founder and CEO of Encore. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for being with us. We'll talk about how we can move closer to an age-integrated society and the role of proximity, purpose, and the power of imagination. Mark has dedicated his professional career to improving the lives of people of all ages by connecting generations. He makes this case very beautifully in his book, How to Live Forever, which just recently came out in paperback. It's a wonderful book, and we'll hear more about the cases he makes in this book tonight. So, Mark, let's jump right into it. The interesting thing is that we were not always an age-segregated society. There was a time when we actually all lived in an age-integrated society, but there was a shift in the 50s, which manifested itself in these large-scale developments like Sun City or Youngstown or... Even here, I think Leechertown, it was called, which is Rossmore now. So what happened and what changed? Because ever since we have been trying to get back to this age-integrated society. Well, thanks, Susie, for having me. I just think it's so ironic that we're probably a mile away from each other and we're doing this via Zoom. So I'm really looking forward to more opportunities to have this conversation in person. And you know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this question that you just raised. I don't know how many of you have seen the documentary, Some Kind of Heaven, that came out, which is about the uh, logical extension of those communities you mentioned that were created in mid-century America. It's the villages, which is the subject of the documentary, has 120,000 people living there over the last decade. I think it was the fastest growing metropolitan area in the country. So it's a lot of the actions that were set in motion mid-century are still going strong. But I think before turning to what happened, I I just wanted to say that this whole process of becoming an age-segregated society took about a century. We began the 20th century as one of the most age-integrated societies in the world and ended it as arguably the most age-segregated. Andrew Scott, who's an economist in the UK, describes America as being in a stage of age apartheid. And the damage of that, was it any surprise in the most age-segregated society in the world that we have rampant ageism? Is it any surprise that we're seeing an epidemic of loneliness and social isolation? Is it any surprise that 
you know, lots of pundits are talking about zero sum uh, war between older and younger people. We hear about okay boomer and okay millennial. But even in a personal way, since I started out talking about a documentary, I'll keep making these random cultural references. The new season of the Kaminsky Method is about to commence with Alan Arkin and Michael Douglas. And there's a scene in one of the earlier seasons that I think captures the state we're in, maybe better than anything else I've seen on a big screen or a small screen. Michael Douglas is diagnosed with prostate cancer. His business is falling apart. His personal life is in shambles. And he takes a long walk in the park, he's talking to his daughter on the phone and out in the distance, he hears the sound of children laughing and he navigates his way to this playground. He's in a terrible mood when he arrives and just seeing these kids and their sense of joy is lifting him out of his depression. In the background, first you start seeing two parents coming together and three parents, and then they're on their cell phones and you realize that they're calling the police because there's this old guy who's looking at children in the playground. And, you know, how did we get from a a society where older and younger people lived in close proximity, where they worked together, even one-room schoolhouses had four-year-olds and 40-year-olds learning the alphabet together, to a society when older and younger people get together, it's called the cops. So, you know, obviously it's an extreme example, but I think we created a really perverse social organization. It started out for relatively benign, even idealistic reasons. Universal education and child labor laws led young people to be put in a set of institutions. We invented high schools. Social security, for all of its many, many, many virtues, was in part designed to get older people out of the workforce during the Great Depression when youth unemployment was really high. We created a whole set of seniors-only institutions from nursing homes, retirement community senior centers, and pretty soon the generational twains stopped meeting. We had young people in schools, middle people in workplaces, and older people in these institutions for other older people. I think it's a grievous wound that leaves us ill-prepared to live the long lives that we're projected to live. How do you know how to be older when you never have contact with older people? And the multi-generational society that's already washing over us last year, actually 2019 was the first year in our history. We had more people over 60 than under 18. So we've got to find a way to turn that around and to do it urgently. Urgent is sort of the right word because I feel we have so many issues right now, urgent issues which have to be tackled together across generations. That urgency is the right word. We just lived and we are still living through this pandemic where the power of proximity, which you address uh, in your book, this wonderful incidental interactions and intersections between generations has become nearly extinct or very difficult. So I'm wondering if this has raised awareness for the beauty of this incidental interactions or if this has sort of driven us more apart. As you were talking, I was thinking that one of the points that I wanted to make in response to your last question and and the whole some kind of heaven idea is that in in a lot of ways in the 1950s when we created these separate spaces for older people like these retirement communities, it was out of a sense of hopelessness that there was no 
room for older people in American society. And in 1956, Lewis Mumford, who's one of my heroes, great urban scholar and the New Yorker's architectural critic for years, said at no point in any society had any group been so rejected as older people today. I think that rejection and disconnection have been the two banes of the state of older people in America. In that context of an unaccepting society and the possibility of growing old alone, it's not a surprise that people would want to go off to the desert to be with other older people and to pretend that they were young people. Youngtown was the first of these communities. And the genius of that idea was that if everybody was old, then nobody was old, right? You didn't have actual children to remind you that you weren't a kid anymore. And in a society that's so glorified youth, you could live out this fantasy in some kind of heaven. They talk about it being a kind of Disneyland for older people. We lost this kind of natural proximity that you were talking about. I think it really runs against the grain of everything we know about human development. I started out the first 15, 20 years of my working life focused on kids' issues. And the one insight I think I took away from all of that was the importance of relationships for young people, including relationships with unrelated adults. Yuri Bronfenbrenner, who created the Head Start program, was a child development scholar at Cornell for many decades. At the end of his career was asked, I think by a journalist, what he had learned from writing dozens of books and hundreds of articles about what kids need. And he said, what every child needs is at least one adult who's irrationally crazy about them. <laughs> As I started to get more immersed in aging, what I realized is that what every older person, I say this as a near 63 year old, what every one of us needs is to be irrationally crazy about young people. Laura Carsonson's work at Stanford shows that as we grow older, relationships become more and more important. That's her idea of socio-emotional selectivity. Other research has shown that the skills to form relationship, empathy, emotional regulation blossom as we get older. So not only are we driven to relationship, but we get better at it. And that there's uh, a direction to all that connection. The Harvard study of adult development showed that older people who connected with younger people were three times as likely to be happy as those who failed to do so. George Vallant, who led that study for many years, said it's a fundamental aspect of the way we're made as human beings. Biology flows downhill. We've been trying to swim upstream. I think rather than trying so hard to be young, we need to be there for those who actually are. And even more important, I think we need to be as creative in bringing people together across age as we've been around separating them out to create those kinds of opportunities in daily life for the generations to mix and for natural bonds to form. I really believe in the intersection and importance of proximity and purpose. I'll give a story that I encountered as I was working on the book that you mentioned, I went to Cleveland because a, a mentor of mine had moved to a retirement community that was in a beautiful 1920s former luxury hotel in Cleveland, poised between Case Western Reserve, the Symphony Hall, and the Cleveland Clinic. It drew hundreds of culturally minded older people. And somebody had the great idea of giving free rooms to graduate students in music and art in Judson Manor. And that sounded great because you had all these graduate students who needed 
reduced rent and all these older people are interested in culture. The requirement of these students living there was that they play concerts at Judson Manor or do art for the halls. But what started out in efficiency ended up in humanity. I met this 94-year-old woman named Carla who lived next door to a 20-something violist graduate student who married another 20-something violist graduate student. When they planned their wedding, they didn't invite Carla. They asked her to be the maid of honor. (laughs) This whole idea of deep relationship happened partly because they were living feet from each other but also because they loved music. And I think we can create more opportunity for physical interaction, but also to help people find their common goals. We can reweave this age fabric in society. Helping people, from my perspective, is also helping people to continue to live in their own homes, if they choose, allows them to continue to be part of a dynamic community. I think that's sort of a piece of this puzzle. When we talked beforehand, we were also talking about institutions which already offer or have the possibility to offer this intergenerational service. Is there something you have witnessed which is an example for this, or is this something you're trying to work towards? You're making me think of this story that David Brooks, the New York Times columnist tells in his book, The Second Mountain, which is is about later life. He describes this guy who lives in Los Angeles who buys a new house, but it's got a bamboo grove and he hates bamboo. So he goes to the hardware store, buys a lot of power tools, chops all the bamboo down, and then pours bag after bag of bamboo poison on top of the stumps. And then just to be absolutely certain, he brings a contractor in who makes a sidewalk over the bamboo. And a year later, the bamboo stalks are breaking through the sidewalk. And I I think that that's kind of what's happening in this area. You know, we had thousands, maybe millions of years of human history where the generations have connected. A lot of cultural anthropologists now believe that the key event in the creation of human beings as a species was the role that grandparents, particularly grandmothers, played when the grandmother had to take care of young kids while both parents went off and hunted and gathered, which is what allow human babies to grow these big brains that separates us from all others. So biology does flow downhill, and it's been flowing downhill for a long time. And in this very short period of time, we try to turn that around. So it's no surprise that all over the country, all over the globe, people are finding new ways to do old things. I've been so impressed by the creativity of social innovators. Social innovation did a lot to get us into this mess. We invented nursing homes. We invented places like the villages. We invented all of these age-separating institutions, senior centers. Now there's a group of really creative people of all ages, including lots of younger people, talking about the Judson Manor housing example, one of my favorite examples is a group called Nesterly, which started out in Boston. Some young MIT city planning students created home sharing between older people and younger people, particularly graduate students. Again, you know, one of these exchanges that starts in efficiency and ends in humanity. There are a whole set of university programs around the country where older people are returning to campuses, but not in ways that are separated from the undergraduate and graduate students, but 
deeply enmeshed in their work at the University of Minnesota, Phyllis Moen, who's a famous scholar of later life and started something called UMAC, where older people come spend a year at the University of Minnesota, take classes with younger people, help prepare for the next chapter, but in the process, age integrate the university, one of our most age separate environments. I remember interviewing an undergraduate at the University of Minnesota saying she couldn't figure out why there were all these old people in her future of work class. And then one day it dawned on her that they had actually worked. Just to give you an idea of the range, there's a group called Nuns and Nuns, which was created by a group of millennial change makers at Harvard Divinity School and elsewhere, who reached out to older women religious to N-U-N-S's, and the millennial N-O-N-E-S's get that name because when Pew and other places come out and survey young people about religious affiliation, they say they're spiritually inclined, but religiously unaffiliated. They're N-O-N-E-S's. And they've sought out these older nuns to find out what it's like to spend a life focused on fighting poverty, oftentimes making great personal sacrifice. And they've created this learning community. They did a residency at the Mercy Center here in the Bay Area near the airport for a month. They lived together and created projects working on refugee issues at the border, voter registration in Wisconsin. I, I just see this ferment all over the country and, and really in, in many other places too, all around getting back to the idea that older and younger people fit together like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. These are all sort of flames popping up. And so how do you pour fuel into the fire? I'll tell you one of my great sources of hope is what's happening in Singapore, which I know is a lot different from the United States, but city of five, six million people, which has spent three billion Singaporean dollars, about two and a half billion American dollars to create what they're describing as a kampong for all ages. Kampong being the Malay word for village. So this is the opposite of the villages. This is the real village built around the idea of intergenerational harmony. And one after another, they've just done ruthlessly pragmatic things. Every new senior center and preschool built in Singapore are co-located. Every new housing development that's built there is built around the idea of three gen flats, older, younger, and middle people all living in proximity. They created a 100,000 person volunteer corps of older people working to particularly solve problems facing school children. Most of the ideas actually came from things that were happening in the United States. The people who were the architects of that effort went to Providence Mount St. Vincent, which is a 400-person assisted living facility in West Seattle, has four floors, and on each of the four floors is a preschool in an attempt to create a kind of village on each floor. I, I realize we're not likely to do what has happened in Singapore at the scale relative to what they're doing, but it is an example of what it's like for a society to make this a priority, put the money behind it. And one of the biggest investments they've made is in an innovation fund for new ideas to engage older people in society and particularly in ways that cross 
generations. There are so many talented entrepreneurs and innovators now who want to work in this area, but we haven't met them halfway. At Encore, we launched this year an innovation fellowship. It's going to have 10 fellows who are coming up with new ideas for bringing the generations together. We had 20 applicants for every slot. We ended up having to pick 15 because we couldn't bear turning that many people away. And so many of them, this is particularly heartening for me because I was a young person who really loved older people. Now I'm an older person who loves older people. But there were so many college students and even high school students who had great ideas for doing it. So it made me hopeful for the future. Yes, that makes me hopeful too. And I see this interest in our work too, in college students, in wanting to connect to older adults and realizing them as a great resource. So linking back to what you also said about Singapore, but also incidental proximity, I recently watched again one of my favorite shows, which is Tales of a City from Armistead Maupin. There's this fantastic old mansion in San Francisco filled you know, run by Olympia Dukakis, an older woman, with all these young adults. And I wonder if we put our imagination into ways to connect generations outside the traditional family. And I wonder if you have come across examples or if this is something you have thought about intentional intergenerational households, which are not the traditional family, could also be a way to promote this side-by-side proximity. Yes, I agree. I think that this idea of community grandparents is something that has enormous promise. I keep thinking that what we need to do is adapt the grandmother hypothesis to the modern family world. <laughs> you know, that that's the, the formula. And, and all over the world, there are attempts to do that. Finland, for example, has a quite significant community grandparent effort which is to create grandparent-like relationships among unrelated people. Because even in Finland, a country tiny compared to the United States geographically, very frequently grandparents and grandchildren are not in physical proximity. I think that there's a huge opportunity to create these bonds. And for the last 30 years, I've seen so many powerful examples that convinced me that it's possible to do that. And in mutually beneficial ways, I got my start in doing this work through creating something called Experience Corps, along with a geriatrician named Linda Freed. What struck me from the beginning in this program, which recruited elders living in the same neighborhoods as low-income schools, oftentimes they went to those schools themselves to work in teams of 10 to 15, helping low-income kids read by the third grade. From the very beginning, we thought that this was a program to mobilize the experience of older people, to help young people. When I go out and talk to the older Experience Corps members, they thought that it was a program to provide experiences. There was this double meaning that we weren't even aware of. It turned out to have an incredibly powerful impact on the reading and academic skills of the kids, but it was also a very powerful loneliness prevention program. I remember meeting this woman, Martha Jones, in Philadelphia, who was working at the Taylor Elementary School. And she told me about one day it was snowing and unpleasant in February in Philadelphia, dark outside, and she was getting depressed. She decided that she wasn't going to go into her service at, at Taylor School that day. And she pulled the covers back over and she started thinking about the kids and how 
disappointed they'd be. And finally, she pulled herself out of bed. She got dressed. She went downstairs. She took the bus to school. She climbed the stairs and she was hanging her coat up on a hook on the wall. And she described feeling these two little arms crawling up behind her. And she said, I remember thinking to herself, somebody loves me. And, you know, she was part of this web of mutuality, of this interdependence. And she might have spiraled downward at that point, but she was already so engaged in the community. And so I think that there's a lot we can do to create these kinds of bonds and that everybody would benefit. Amazing programs and connections. I hope that they will move forward. I felt that the inauguration was also sort of a program like this, where we had the oldest president ever sworn in, and then this amazing young poet Amanda Gorman reading her poem and they were on equal footing. And I thought age is maybe not important anymore in terms of what we contribute, what we are allowed to contribute to society. I thought it was really interesting. Biden did that town hall in Wisconsin on CNN. And at one point, somebody asked him about what makes him hopeful. And he started telling the story about how three out of five ads that he sees on TV have interracial couples. And then he started talking about young people and about how it's a testimony to the openness of young people and how much we can learn from young people. I felt like that was a really symbolic message of the inauguration of Amanda Gorman and Biden coming together, how much young people can learn from older people, older people can learn from young people. I have a particular hope and dream for all of these elder leaders like Biden and Nancy Pelosi to really call the younger generation to action to help solve the problems of the country, to join older people in doing that, and to create, I think, for the first time, an intergenerational, co-generational service corps. Because I started out mobilizing older people to serve young people, even in ways that were mutually beneficial. There are plenty of efforts and wonderful ones where young people are being summoned to serve older people, and especially in the context of the pandemic, we've seen a lot of really great things happening, but rarely to bring the generations together on equal footing to bring their unique assets and idealism. And, you know, that was Maggie Kuhn's dream. The tagline for the Great Panthers was young and old in action together. I lived a few blocks away from the two rambling houses in Germantown in Philadelphia, where she was living in a multi-generational life. And she was proselytizing for, uh, you know, co-generational activism. I love that she's buried in my hometown, Philadelphia, under this gravestone, which says, here lies Maggie Kuhn under the only stone she left unturned. <laughs> so uh, I'd like to see Biden and Pelosi and these other great elder leaders really invite the younger generation to ask not and to join them in that enterprise. You are listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. 
There's a couple of questions, Mark, that are just clarifications. So we'll do those quickly first. You made the comment about the evolution of nursing homes. And the question was, are you saying that there was an upswing in nursing homes in the 50s as a result of age separation? Someone just wanted clarification. Oh, no, I've spent a lot of time focused on the development of retirement communities in the 1950s. And so, no, I was talking about nursing homes and senior centers and other age-graded institutions as part of that universe. But the 1950s really gave birth to the retirement community movement, which I think was the intersection of this idea of a second youth. It's really, as Susie put, imagination in the title for today's session. And I think a failure of imagination that success in later life amounted to a kind of impersonation of youth graying as playing. And that this idea of age segregation, that there was no room for older people in society, so may as well go off to the desert and play. On the one hand, I really understand why those institutions were created. They were an escape from rejection of older people and they were an attempt to find community. But the whole underlying basis was, I think, deeply flawed. So Youngtown, the very first retirement community in America, created by a socialist, a guy named Big Ben Schleifer, who's Jewish from New York, who was trying to create a kibbutz for older people in the middle of the desert. So it was an extremely idealistic notion for older people of modest means. That's why he didn't want to pay school taxes. He wanted older people who were from working class backgrounds. 30 years after it was opened, it was in the national news because the young town was throwing out this couple, we were talking about grandparents before, these grandparents who had taken in their grandson, who was a victim of abuse, Chaz Cope, the neighbors, instead of bringing them lasagnas and asking if they could pitch in, planted a scarlet letter-like sign on their lawn that read, harboring children, <laughs> find them $100 a day until they were driven out of the community. The New York Times pointed out that dogs were allowed at Youngtown, <laughs> but not children. So what started out with a relatively admirable goal it turned out to be a solution that I think doesn't serve anybody particularly well. One other quick request. Can you think of any link that would give folks information about this project in Singapore? The only one I know of is there's an article at the milkeninstitute.org um, that talks about it, but maybe you know some other ones. Yes, I wrote uh, some about it in the how to Live Forever book, and I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal about it as well. So one person, Rachel, asks, for years I've heard the idea being thrown around about institutions that house older adults should also house children for school, after-school classes, daycare, etc. There are some examples, but few, like Hope Meadows in Illinois or Bridge Meadows in Oregon, and some examples in Ann Basting's work. Why is this not happening more? It seems like such a win-win. What a great question. You know, you mentioned there are these stunning communities. It started out with Hope Meadows in Illinois, which Brenda E. Hart created on a former Air Force base, the Chanute Air Force Base in Rantoul, Illinois. She's a social work professor at University of Illinois, an expert on foster care. She remembered growing up in upstate New York in a community where elders were you know, a central part of daily life. She uh, was able to get this Air Force Base with maybe 60 homes, had foster families move there, and then invited older 
people to come and live for reduced or free housing costs among the foster families, including a group of nuns that turns out were one of the first from Chicago, one of the first groups to move there and basically recreated this 20th century multi-generational village. And I love the idea too, that it was a kind of adaptive reuse of this Air Force base and an adaptive reuse of all these human beings too, you know, who found a kind of second life. And then their versions of it, Bridge Meadows in Portland is a kind of urban version. The Tree Foundation in central Massachusetts, it's kind of like a suburban version. They remind me of these utopian communities, which have played such a big part in American history of showing a better way of life. The co-housing developments all over the Bay Area and the country are other examples. It goes again to Susie's great point about imagination. Laura Carsonson says, if you can't imagine the future, you can't enact it. You go to those places and you get a glimpse of what a multi-generational future looks like. And all these problems are being solved, but nobody sees themselves as solving somebody else's problems. They're just living together and forging these bonds. So to your question, I think one of the reasons that they remain small is that there hasn't ever been a significant investment on their huge regulatory barriers. When I went to the Treehouse Foundation in East Hampton, Massachusetts, one of the most striking things is because of the housing restrictions, the elders who are living there could be community grandparents to the young families that were living amongst them but they couldn't have their own grandchildren come and visit for more than X number of days a year. Part of it is imagination. Part of it is a funding issue. Part of it is a challenge around regulation. Even in philanthropy, the funding is so carved up by age, it makes these complex solutions not really fit anywhere. Another question related to what's gone on with the pandemic and COVID. Mikiko is saying there is some silver lining in that it is an opportunity to bring generations together and they are spending more time together. Flip side of that, there's also people incredibly more isolated, but I'm curious if there are other things you're seeing as a result of the pandemic that are impacting some of the things that you're talking about. You know, that song lyric, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. I really feel like it's driven home. We focused a lot on loneliness and isolation among older people, among others, as a result of the pandemic, driving home how serious a problem that is. But the pandemic's also driven home that close cousin of purposelessness. So many people have really felt cut off from opportunities to contribute all too often. I feel like the message has been stay home, stay safe, and stay the hell out of the way, you know, and just this view of older people as passive recipients of service. And yet at the same time, more optimistically, we've had so many, we were talking before about Biden and Pelosi, Dr. Fauci being the most trusted person in America during this period, John Lewis and RBG in the spotlight. And so I feel like there've been these two contrasting views of older people. I don't know how we're going to come out of it, but I, I would like to see us focus just on the loneliness and isolation part, the, the lessons of the pandemic, and focus not just on alleviating loneliness, but creating the opposite of loneliness, which is deep connection. Just like that story from Experience Corps, when loneliness comes calling, people already have the connections and the social resources to weather those storms. Mm -hmm. And I think that means 
living in different ways, having more opportunities to be connected to peers and across generations. But striking that Vivek Murthy wrote his book together before the pandemic hit. He's the one who, as Surgeon General, argued that loneliness was the single most worrisome public health initiative in America today. I think that there are a lot of good ideas right now for creating the opposite of loneliness, the kind of loneliness prevention agenda. And with Murthy back in that role, maybe we'll actually see some policies that reflect it. One thing I've seen just in the built environment, at least here locally, is the fact that a lot of these municipalities and codes and restrictions on some of the alternative housing situations are starting to loosen up with accessory dwelling units, people being able to divide their house up potentially to have someone as a tenant or a family member to move back in. That's a small one that is starting, I think will stick even after the pandemic. I'll tell a personal story, which is two weeks ago, my in-laws moved into our ADU. So I am now part of a multi-generational household and it resulted in my wife and I being able to go away for one night this week for the first time in 15 months. What's interesting is that in our neighborhood, we actually have a couple in their 80s who are living two doors down who've become these community grandparents to our kids. Their own grandchildren are living in Idaho and in the Sierras. What all this has shown me is that there are just so many different variations on the family idea, and they're quite compatible. It's nice to have them happening at the same time. So I feel like we're in our own little idiosyncratic way living out some of these ideas of a more multi-generational life. And I've got to say, it's a much richer life. Another question for you. People are curious, do you have any go-to resources to kind of keep a handle on all the things that are evolving? What would be your sort of hit list of things to check out for them online or podcasts or books? What would you recommend? Oh boy. Well, I'd recommend Ashton's book. One, one of my favorite books is The Gardener and the Carpenter by Alison Gopnik, who's a Berkeley psychology professor, the sister of Adam Gopnik. It provides a, you know, a really powerful argument for the importance of elders in raising younger generations and the role of allo parents through human history. So that's something I read recently and really, really liked. To go back to the beginning, talking about what films have been out, I just saw the Tom Hanks film, News of the World. I don't know if anybody's seen that. It's been getting some Oscar attention, but I saw it right after watching Some Kind of Heaven, and I felt like they were telling the exact opposite story. Some kind of heaven is basically the only salvation for older people is through separation from society. And it turns out to be not much salvation at all. And then this other film, News of the World, it's set in a time not unlike our own post-Civil War Texas. And Hanks plays a former Confederate officer. He's lost his wife and he's basically opted for a life separate from society. And he's thrown together with this child reluctantly and it's about how their relationship forms and it reminded me of so many other films that i've seen recently i don't know if any of you saw the film hunt for the wilder people from new zealand it's a much better film than news of the world with, with sam neill and he plays this kind of crusty elder whose wife passes away and he's forced to run from the authorities with this maori teen who's coming out of 
foster care. It's about their relationship together. And the Sophia Loren film that came out at the end of 2020, The Life Ahead, where she plays a Holocaust survivor who takes in the children of sex workers. And they're all basically stories of older people and younger people who reluctantly come together and discover that they need each other and they can solve a lot of their (laughs) problems. And I feel like it's kind of the opposite parable of some kind of heaven. Maybe it's just the Oscar season heating up, but I'm, I'm really struck by this archetypal story that all of these films are trying to tell us about how we need each other across age and oftentimes across race too, because all three films are about multicultural as well as a multi-generational bond. Somebody also I just saw mentioned in here the movie Nomadland. I think it comes out tomorrow. On the subject of films and tomorrow at Encore, if anybody's interested, we're doing a special tribute tomorrow night to a film called Keep On Keeping On, which is the story of the relationship between Clark Turry, who was one of the great jazz trumpet players of all time, Dizzy Gillespie's mentor, Quincy Jones's mentor, Miles Davis's mentor, who would have been 100 this year. In his 70s, he went to teach jazz at a university and he was losing his sight from the complications of diabetes. And he was connected with a blind young pianist who was a student there, Justin Coughlin, to try to find out how to navigate the world without sight. Clark Terry had always been afraid of the dark, so this was terrifying to him. And they forged this beautiful relationship. I think it's the best documentary ever made about a relationship between an older person and a younger one. And so we're going to screen the trailer tomorrow. And then I'm going to do an interview with Justin Coughlin, the young pianist who starred in the film. A couple of people are interested in getting involved in some efforts. Are there any organizations or programs that you can recommend that are sort of around this idea of intergenerational and loneliness and proximity? Well, I'll put in a plug for Encore. We started out focused on mobilizing older people through service to young people. I talked about Experience Corps earlier, and then that led to a long period of trying to promote the idea of second acts for the greater good, which we're still trying to to do. But in the last couple of years, we've gone back to our original goal to go back to something I said earlier. We're trying to channel the spirit of Maggie Kuhn and bring older and younger change makers together to solve problems and forge bonds and bridge divides. So please go to Encore.org if you're an older person who wants to work with younger people to bring about change. We're trying to create a community of older people who love working with younger people and younger people who love working with older people to create this kind of co-generational future. I apologize for being self-promotional. I I know as soon as the conversation ends, I'm going to think of a dozen other resources, but at Encore.org, we have articles about various options in the context of the pandemic for older people to become engaged in their community and intergenerational ways. Also, Generations United is a wonderful organization too that has a lot of great opportunities. One more question here. Someone was asking 
if you had seen Nomadland about older adults who move from seasonal low-wage jobs, any thoughts on comparing this community to the villages and lessons that one might take away? Well, I think my baptism into this whole issue was around a program that was created during the War on Poverty, Foster Grandparents, that again, many of you probably know about. I think it was one of the great social innovations of the last half century. What Foster Grandparents does is it focuses on low-income older people, oftentimes older women of color, and really helps these individuals do extraordinarily important work. I got introduced to the program on the pediatrics ward of Maine Medical Center in, in Portland, where I met two foster grandparents, Aggie Bennett and Louise Casey, who were respectively four foot 10 and four foot 11, who were just a pillar in the lives of these kids who had extended stays under really dire circumstances. The poet Marge Piercy has a wonderful line. She said, the pitcher cries for water to carry and a person for work that is real. And seeing Aggie and Louise and the work that they were doing in that stage of life, let this kind of indelible stamp on me. And it was a reminder to go back to Maggie Kuhn, who said, we don't have a single person to waste. Oftentimes, elders and low-income elders are the first people we'll write off, and yet oftentimes have the most to give. I would really love to see more efforts like that, which are tapping the talents of elders all across the socioeconomic spectrum. Well, thank you, Mark, and thank you, Everybody who participated, thank you, Gretchen, for so skillfully leading the questions. I know there are many more questions in the room, and I know this conversation will continue. I think what you said at the end is that we can't waste any energy here or any person. We all have to work together. There is a lot of work to do from climate crisis to social justice. Connecting generation is really the way to go. So thank you for all the work you do, Mark, and for so consistently and with so much creativity over all these years. Thank you, Susie. And next time I want to interview you, we'll turn the tables. All right. Thank you, everybody. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide, and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.